0: We read together 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed." what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Lord, we are thankful for your loving kindness, for your patience, for your love that you have set upon us through your Son, Jesus. And we ask, Lord, now that you would remind us of that faithfulness. That you would remind us of your great work. Lord, that you came to the cross willingly, obediently, thinking of all of our actions, Lord, that would be offensive to you. Our sins that we would commit the sins that we would participate in, our misdeeds. Lord, we are so thankful that you have shed your blood at the cross for our sin. And through your death, Lord, have given us new life. You've washed us clean. You've made us pure. And so, Lord, we want to come this morning recognizing that we belong to you, that we are under your authority, that we are under your lordship and lord we want you to work in us this morning change us transform us help us to see you more clearly this morning jesus and so lord we ask that you would work now among your people by the power of your holy spirit we love you amen Well, as we look at this text, the, uh, what Peter's really trying to get across here really reminds me, uh, it really resonates with me, really, the, the method that, um, and the way that he's rolling out this information. You see, what Peter does here in this text, what, what he's trying to do here in this new section, is to give his hearers a bit of a warning. He's trying to prepare you for a future event, a future happening. And I don't know if you are the same as me, but I really like to have a heads up. I like to have a warning about what's to come. I'm the type of person that wants to know the details of every single thing that's going to happen. If I'm going to go to the dentist, I need the play-by-play. But when I sit down in the chair, like I don't want any surprises. So it's like, you know, I, I want to know, like, what do the numbers mean? You're going to be saying these weird code words to the to the, the dental assistant. If you're going to be, like, picking something, you've got to walk me through the procedure before so that way I can understand what to expect. Otherwise, in my mind, I'm like, oh, I need to protect myself. I need to prepare myself. And I, I, I'm just so invested in, in acting in that way. When I... When I go to the doctor, I have this whole like, routine that I go through with them. It's like, what are we doing today? What do you need me to do? What are you going to do? How long is this going to take? What is, what is like the results going to be? What would the next steps be if there's a good result? What would the next steps be if there's a bad result? Like, I just want to know everything, so that way I'm not nervous and anxious and anticipating uh, you know, this, uh, this action that could be su- surprising to me. I, I want to know those things. Uh, particularly because I want to be prepared, and partially probably because I, I, I want to be in control. But here, what, what Peter does is he, he informs you of this, not so that you can be in control, but so that you can understand that you're not in control and that it's okay. That's the biggest thing, that you're understanding that you're not really in control and it's Okay? This has been the entire thrust of the scriptures as you look at the story of the bible it is the story of creator god coming into relationship with mankind seeking to restore a broken relationship and helping god coming to help man because man couldn't keep it together could not uh, remain in control in a wise way in a god-honoring way in a way that led to life and so Knowing the tendency of mankind to fall short, knowing the tendency of mankind uh, to mess things up, to wind up into in difficult situations, uh, God enters in in order to restore that relationship by his own means, by his own method. It's through precisely his work that we uh, relinquish control, we give control over to him, asking him, to be Lord over us, to rule over us, because he has proven himself to be good, to be loving, to be kind, but also to be faithful over our lives. And here as Peter comes, he reminds us, he reminds his hearers that you're going to experience some difficulties, some hardships in life, but you ought not to be worried about it. There's an expectation that comes, uh, and you should know you should have your mind prepared that this is, this is all normal. This is a part of what you're going to experience. And so he wants us to learn what to expect so that we might be prepared for our future. Now, he starts off transitioning into this uh, new section. He's just gone through a, a big section, but he, he comes through the, into this new section, uh, again, addressing his hearers with this simple phrase, beloved. He gets back to reminding them that you are dear to the heart of God. You, 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 the Lord loves you so deeply. You are loved by God, is how he starts off again, reminding them before he gets into what is to come, he uses this phrase that would be applied to those who are loved by God. He doesn't say, oh, you, you know, this... Uh, conglomeration of people or he doesn't say like oh you crowd he says you are loved by god it's the first thing that he wants you to understand it's the context that he gives as you move through the passage reminding you that you are loved so deeply by god he goes on and brings out his uh real statement that he wants to make for this section do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Peter says, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised when this comes upon you. Well, why would fiery trials be surprising? Well, most of the time, if you think that God is, is good and he loves you, then you think like, okay, well, if he loves me and something bad is happening, like, this shouldn't be happening. That seems like it makes sense. Like, bad things shouldn't happen to me if God loves me. It's it's a logical it's a logical thought, and oftentimes what we do is we equate God's love, we equate God's love for us with uh, with the suffering the difficulties the hardships that we experience and we sometimes begin to think well maybe god is angry with me maybe he's frustrated with me maybe he's upset with me and this is why uh, i'm experiencing these fiery trials but peter what he does here is he gets out in front of it before you're here experiencing these difficulties and he says look when you go through these things don't be surprised you shouldn't be like, what is this? What is this all about? Right? That's that's how he, he phrases this as though something strange were happening to you. Like, oh my gosh, like I didn't know that we were gonna experience this. I didn't know that I was gonna go through hardship. He says, this is this is regular. This is par for the course. This is what you should be expecting. That you're going to go through seasons of difficulty and hardship, that you're going to to deal with fiery trials. Now, trials are hard enough, but then you get to fiery trials, that's a whole other level, right? right it's like there's spicy and then there's like extra spicy this is this is like it could get gnarly it could get pretty crazy here so this is what you could be heading into and he wants to get out in front of this so that way we have a warning we have the ability to understand that when we are in the midst of these things we can be reminded that we are loved by god it helps us prepare for future suffering when we are warned in advance so that when these future difficulties arise no one's surprised we expected this to come we are prepared and we know how to respond now what he also says this in this phrase is I guess more of what he does is he implies something than outrightly saying it by making this point Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. What Peter's really getting at here is that this suffering, this difficulty, this hardship that you experience, it's really a a sign of walking with God. It's not so much that God's expressing his displeasure towards you, but rather... (laughs) God working out his sanctifying uh process in your life. He's refining you. He's making you new. He's shaping you to be something uh specific. And so this is actually more of a, a of a marker of God's purifying presence in your life than his frustration or 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 displeasure with you. Now, Peter says that there's a point for these things. They our fiery trials—they come upon us to test us. They come upon us to test us. Now, of course, here when we when we think about uh, this word "test," it's this is not to say that this is uh, a test that you will uh, th- that is meant to to say whether you are in or out whether you are uh, a christian or not a christian but rather what it's meant to do is to put strain so that you might get stronger right we all test out different things at different times the most uh, obvious way that this would be seen is through uh you know your muscles right as you get older as you work on uh just the regular tasks of life you know, when you come home from the grocery store, you, you, maybe you're only able to lift one bag, and then as you use your muscles and exercise throughout regular life, not even training, but just just going through life, pretty soon you're able to carry more than one bag. You, your muscles are being tested and strengthened as they grow, and, and you, you begin to develop greater muscles, you begin to develop greater dexterity and, and the ability to be more agile and, and strong. And... As you press in even further, you begin to uh, get to things like weight training or exercising and and you go through these processes of physical exercise, and then your muscles are tested each time you go to uh, go through that process and you are trying to bring them to the point where they are maxed out so that they might get stronger and that you might develop more muscle here. This is what Peter's saying: you are going to go through these things and these trials are going to be a test not a test to determine whether you are in or out or whether god loves you or doesn't love you but a test to strengthen you to stretch you you know a, a trial that that you might experience might be really easy for somebody else who's already gone through that trial or it might be really difficult for somebody else right a lot of this has to do with simply exercising your spiritual muscles so that the Lord might be shown to be the one who is strengthening you. You come to realize that you ultimately are weak and that you ultimately have to recognize him as the one who sustains you, the one who needs him every moment, of every minute, of every hour, of every day. These Physical tests, these spiritual tests, really, uh, are meant to demonstrate that God is the sustainer, the one who provides all things for all of his people at all times. And so he says here that these fiery trials, they come upon us, they come upon us to test us. Paul, in Romans chapter 5, verse 3, says this. He says, we rejoice in our sufferings. We rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, for Paul, there's there's a chain reaction that happens when you experience suffering. That suffering, and uh, this rejoicing in suffering it produces endurance. As you go through, there's that test, you learn how to get stronger, you learn how to last longer in the in the trial. And that endurance produces character, the character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because of God's love. Right? So he'll come so Peter will come and anchor his point in in uh not being ashamed as well. But he here's what James says about this he also encourages his hearers he says count it all joy my brothers when you meet trials of various kinds what he says is that you ought to welcome these sufferings these trials that you should joyfully welcome them he says for you for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing he says, when you experience these hardships and difficulties, when you experience suffering, you are stretched in a way, you are tested in such a way that it produces steadfastness. And when steadfastness is brought to its uh, end, then you are presented as perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I mean, I know that that is certainly, I would like to be characterized as perfect and complete, lacking nothing. But we really know that the only way that you get there is by coming to the end of yourself and trusting in Christ, in his faithfulness, because you just know that you won't be able to be faithful on your own. You won't be able to hold on. And so Peter, he says, you're going to experience these trials. You're going to experience these difficulties. He says, you should expect them. But now he instructs Christians, he instructs uh, you and I, on how we are to respond to suffering. It's not just that we should welcome this and we should know this is coming, but we, should, uh, we need to respond, right? So he echoes what Paul has said and what James has said. Look at verse 13 of 1 Peter chapter 4. He says this, But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So Peter's word echoes James and Paul. His counsel is this, rejoice, that you should find joy in suffering, right? Now, let me help you understand this, right? Because a lot of times when we think joy in suffering, what we think of as suffering as the end result, and, okay, something hard is going to happen, and now I'm going to have joy in that, okay? So here's... what Peter's not arguing for here is so much as being excited about bad things that are happening to you. He's not saying when you experience difficulties, you should be really excited about the difficulties itself. But rather, find joy in Christ that he sustains you, that he provides what you need in difficulty. Right? Because there's no joy in the difficulty itself. That's foolish. It's That's not what he's getting at here. He says that there's something greater that allows you to have joy in the midst of difficulty. It's when you find your identity in Christ, and when the the wind and the waves of life come upon you, and they shake you, and they rock you, your foundation is sure you can stand upon the rock of Christ, and you are not moved because Jesus is faithful, not because you were excited about the wind and the waves like thrashing you. No, you can have joy because you're standing upon the identity of Christ. You can be rock solid in Christ. It's foolish to, to be excited about the, the things that are rocking you, right? That, that doesn't make any sense. But what he says here is the way that you get through these things, the way that you uh, move through life where you are bulletproof, is through joy it's this joy that we find in jesus that he satisfies us more than anything else that our identity is hidden in him more than anything else more than our families more than our careers more than uh you know our political affiliations more than anything more than our financial resources more than where we plan our our time and energy more more than the Uh, seasons of rest and vacation that we're looking to, all of those things, like, none of that is going to fulfill us and satisfy us in the way that Jesus satisfies us. And when we look to Christ as the one who is ultimately meeting every need, when he is our all-in-all, if the things that are temporary in this life are destroyed, it doesn't really matter if you have your all-in-all. It doesn't really matter when, when you have that joy in Christ that can never be taken away. Death already tried to defeat Jesus and didn't win, right? So we're good. If you find your identity in Christ, there's nothing that can come against that. And here what Peter says is, if you want to be bulletproof, if you want to be insulated against suffering, hardship, difficulty, rejoice, find joy in Christ. Share in Christ's sufferings. He's like, you know you're going to, but rejoice. Instead of being shocked that you're going to experience these things, instead of being surprised that you're going to experience these fiery trials, rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Now, the sufferings of Christ that it describes here are really uh, uh, a brief description it's a summary really of all the things that you would experience in your life that are related to your allegiance to christ when you choose jesus over this world when you choose jesus over society and culture when you choose jesus over anything else and you experience suffering as a result this is what it's talking about sharing in christ's sufferings right We find an early description in Acts chapter 5, verse 41, where the disciples, they are before this uh, council, uh, the Sanhedrin there, and they are, you know, kind of shaken up and beaten here and given this talking to. And they go out, Acts chapter 5, verse 41 tells us, they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy, to suffer dishonor for the name, so they went in, they just basically got beat up a whole bunch, and then they left, and then they were just pumped, they were so excited, they went out rejoicing, not just rejoicing that you know they were strong or rejoicing that they made it out, they were rejoicing that they identified with Christ so deeply that they experienced uh, this persecution as a result, that they were unwilling to bend to the culture. They were unwilling to bend to the expectation of their peers. And so as Christians, we ought to rejoice in suffering, even now, so that we might rejoice, Peter tells us, and be glad in the future. We rejoice in suffering now so that we might rejoice and be glad in the future. Here's how he says it. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. What Peter says here is this. You're training right now. You're in basic training. Here's what you ought to do. You need to train now to rejoice in Christ because ultimately, at the, at the end of all things, the end of life is joy in Christ. In his presence is joy forevermore. And so you're not so much learning how to uh, deal with suffering, you're learning how to have joy in Jesus. If Jesus is the end, if there's eternal joy in his presence, that's where you're headed. He's like, you should just partake in it now. You should experience it now. There's no reason to wait. What this does, when we begin to rejoice in Jesus... What it really does is it begins to uh, demonstrate that this is a marker that we belong to him, that we're valuing him, that we're treasuring him so deeply. Now, Peter does something a little bit interesting here. Uh, We read pretty quickly through the text, but what he's doing for his readers is he's anchoring these words in Jesus' very words. When he says here, rejoice and be glad, what Peter's doing for his readers is he's making a connection as first-century hearers, this would have jumped out to them, and perhaps maybe some of you caught it. But what he's doing here is he's pulling the very words of Jesus, the very teachings of Jesus in the Sermon of the Mount out and applying them to his hearers so that they might be like, oh, yeah, Jesus said that. If we're to find joy in Christ, and, and Peter's really saying, like, I'm really echoing what Jesus has said himself. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 11, Jesus says this, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account and here it is rejoice and be glad rejoice and be glad jesus says for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you what jesus is saying here is that when you experience suffering for his name when you experience hardship and difficulty In his name, how you respond to that, if you are honoring Christ in that, if you are being faithful there, it's really an indication that you belong to him. It's really a marker that you are Christian. Of course, he knows we're going to go through these circumstances. Peter is aware of this. And so now he begins to kind of break down some practical examples real quickly. In verse 14, he says this, First Peter chapter four verse fourteen, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Now, as we said previously, to give you some historical context about Peter's readers, uh, what what they were experiencing, they were living at a time where there wasn't this outright like physical oppression that they were experiencing but rather they were experiencing uh, little sections of the culture and society that they were in, that they were mostly experiencing verbal opposition, that people were outspoken against their lives as Christians, against the uh, idea of Christianity, against Jesus. And so this is kind of the context in which, in which Peter writes. Knowing this, he says that there are those who will, will insult you for your devotion to Jesus. As we saw in earlier chapters, the Christians weren't participating in uh, the pagan cult rituals that that were being practiced. They weren't weren't being a part of uh, the worship services that would have been practiced by the people in these various cities that Peter's writing to. They wouldn't have... uh, participated in uh, these feasts or festivals uh, where there was much idolatry going on, but rather they would be insulted by these people for their devotion to Christ. But what Peter says here is this. If you were insulted as Christians, you're actually blessed. It's, It's a blessing that you are insulted. He says you may be insulted by man, but you are blessed by God. Of course, it's not a blessing just to be insulted, but God's um, eye on you views this as a blessing. It, it's a blessing to those who are experiencing these insults. Now, why are believers blessed? Well, Peter tells us, he says, because it's evident that the spirit of God, or the spirit of glory and God rests upon you. The spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Now, Peter's just going for like a huge, a huge throwback here. He's just, he's just reaching down into the archives to anchor this, this section into a description of Jesus himself. When he says this, the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you, he's looking back to Isaiah chapter 11 where Isaiah speaks this prophetic word about the righteous branch that is to come. Of course, Isaiah is speaking of Jesus. In Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, he's remarking about the Davidic king, this, this, uh, this ruler that will come through the line of David. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch "...from his roots shall bear fruit." All right, so he's he's tracing out this lineage. There's going to be uh, uh, this um, king that will come through the line of Jesse, which is David's family, and will bear fruit. And then we find verse 2, "...and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, and the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord." He shall not judge by what his eye sees or decide disputes by what his ears hear. So this this word in Isaiah chapter 11 was applied to Jesus, saying that Jesus is ultimately the one that would come through. He would be the one who'd come through this line of Jesse. Uh, He would be this Davidic king that would come and rule and reign. But remarking here is this, verse 2, The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And so when Peter writes here, he's looking back to Jesus because the Spirit of the Lord rests upon Jesus as this king who has come and ruled and he reigns. And because the Spirit of the Lord rested upon Jesus, because Jesus died and was raised to create a new people, a new nation and dwelt with his Spirit, it can be said of his followers, that the spirit of glory and God rests upon you. The Holy Spirit is, uh, has come upon Christ and he has lived in such a way that has brought us into a new family. And Peter has begun the book saying this, that we are these new people, a new nation brought together for his purposes, that we would proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So Peter says, you're going to experience this, but when you do experience hardship, when you do experience fiery trials, don't worry. Don't be surprised. Rejoice. And he says, more than that, you're blessed because the spirit of, God, of glory and of God rests upon you. Now he gets just to some real practical nuts and bolts words for us to help us understand, like, here's, the, here's the kind of the, the ways that suffering is okay, and here's the ways that suffering is not okay, Verse 15, he says this, But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. Right. So what Peter's simply doing here is he's saying this. Uh, There are things in life that you're going to suffer for that are just basically like that's your fault because you did something stupid. You uh, participated in something sinful. You did something that was against the law. That's on you. That's on you. Like you deserve that because you acted foolishly, you acted sinfully. And he, he gets to this in a real broad way. He starts at like the most obvious blatant intentional sins, like murderer or thief. Right? These first two sins here are blatant examples of of, of sin falling short of God's standards. Not only are murder and um stealing considered sins but like also like governments would also say like this is breaking the law like you you shouldn't do these things. Peter gives us this this wide variety here starting with the most blatant the most obvious so that we can distinguish between gen, like real christian suffering and like well you murdered someone so like if people are mad at you like that's cuz you murdered someone. Like there's an obvious reason people should be mad at you for that. But then he gets here to some other things that are a little bit more nuanced. The third one is not as as nuanced. He just blatantly calls it an evildoer, right? So we would generally say that's general criminal activity, participating in in things that are not murder or or stealing, but doing things that um, would also be against the law, that would be foolish. But then he gets to this last one. He gets to this last one, which is kind of like an interesting one. He says, let none of you suffer as a meddler. (laughs) A meddler, right? And now he gets to the spot where he's just basically saying like this, like, it's not against the law to like meddle in someone's business. It's not against the law to do that. He's like, but you know what? It's like, it's really annoying, it's pretty annoying like if you're like getting in someone's business if if, if most christians are going to realize like obvious sins like murder and stealing and uh you know that you're going to suffer for that but you could also suffer because you're just annoying <laughs> you're just annoying and you're in people's business that you don't need to be in so don't annoy people don't try to uh, be a busybody. Don't try to to be involved in things that you don't need to be involved in. Don't you know live life uh, tactlessly or you know have social graces? Is basically what he's saying. He's like you know obey the scriptures, uh, love one another, but you don't need to be inserting yourself into people's lives uh, to make things all about you because. That's going to lead to people being frustrated with you, and then you're going to experience, like, you know, the byproduct of that people are going to not want to share with you or have you around, and you're going to experience hardships as a byproduct of that. He just gives you practical instructions here as, like, there's no re- like, this should not be a reason for Christian suffering, like, because you're annoying. Like, that's, that's not a general reason. But then he gets back to it, and he says this, verse 16. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. He says you will experience suffering. You will experience this, but suffering as a Christian It does not produce shame. You should not be ashamed to suffer as a Christian. Because Christ has already bore your sin, bore your shame. And when you find your identity in Him, when you're about Him, then you have nothing to be ashamed of. Because He has paid the price. You see, when you feel ashamed... It's because what you, you are experiencing there is that others are judging you for what you have done. But you're trying to defend that identity yourself. But when you relinquish control and when you give that over to Christ and you find your identity in him. When others come against your earthly identity, when they come against that life that you've lived that maybe... Uh, Was not proper, was not uh, honoring to God, and they come against that identity, then you're able to withstand that because Christ has already paid for your sin. You don't have to worry about protecting that or validating your existence because Jesus has already loved you. Knowing more than anyone can shame you, Jesus knows everything that you've ever done and everything that you will do, and then still decides that he loves you. Right? People who might want to shame you, they only know like a little bit. But Jesus knows full well the extent of your sin, and yet gave his life for you. And so, instead of shame, knowing that, having your identity in Christ, Peter says this, don't be ashamed, but glorify God in that name, the name of Christ. It's like if people are going to come against you. And they're going to try to shame you. Just own it and be like, "Yeah, like I, that was really dumb. I was really terrible. I was, that was really foolish and sinful. You know, but that is not who I am. That's not the person I am. I have new life in Christ. I have a new identity. You, you know, have that joy in Christ is what he's getting at here. Be bulletproof. That you are so deeply treasuring Jesus that you were able to withstand." Uh, these statements that people may make against you. And now he wraps this last, last section in verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God. So Peter transitions here, and he moves from a place of saying you're going to experience fiery trials and sufferings and difficulties, and he just helps us see the future a little bit more clearly, knowing that there will be a time of judgment, that there will be a time uh, to, to give an account, as he said earlier in the book, to give an account of your life, And we've said previously that it's not an account of whether you were a good person or a bad person. Those scales will never line up. Whether you're a good person, you've been a good person your whole life, or whether you've been a bad person your whole life and you decided to be a good person at the end, like those scales, they they never match up. You're never going to be good enough for God. Why? Because God isn't asking for good, he's asking for perfect. God's looking, his standard is perfect perfect not good not great not excellent not amazing perfect without error without sin without any blemish or spot and so by default like we basically all blew it we're already all out and so the truth of the gospel here is this. Because you're, you're going to experience judgment, because you're going to experience these difficulties, identity in Christ, who is the only one who has ever lived a perfect life and who offers his life to you and I, that account, that record in, to be applied to us, this is what brings us into relationship with God. And as God looks upon us at the judgment. He not he doesn't see our work, but sees the blood of Christ covering us. His work. Christ's perfect work on our behalf. And so Peter recognizes that there is judgment to come. And he says this even though even though it's coming, it begins. With us Now, what, what Peter's doing here is he's flipping the script from uh, a section uh, that will come, basically he pulls it out of Ezekiel 9. He, he begins to kind of quote this section here, or to, to take the idea from this section, when he says that it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. It's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Now, as people who live in the time of the New Testament, who live on the other side of the cross, we think household of God, that's us. Which Peter's getting at is true. But what he's doing is he's pulling this out of this section in Ezekiel 9. In the Old Testament, the temple, there was God's household. Right? That would be considered uh, his house, but here in the in the New Testament, Peter looks upon, and and the other New Testament writers as well, Paul, uh, looks as the church, as this new community, this new household, as God's people, as his temple. In Ezekiel 9, judgment there, you, you can go back and read it, it literally begins at the temple, at the household of God. But what Peter says is, in this New Testament time, God's judgment begins with his people. It starts here with the church. And that this judgment that comes upon his people is through the process of testing. Of course, he's speaking to the final judgment, but for you and I, we're in the process of dealing with these fiery trials. We're being stretched out and tested and strengthened. We're being purified as we make our way through these fiery trials. And as Peter says, it's going to begin with us. It begins now with us. It begins with Christians. We are going to be sanctified as we move through life, finding our identity in Christ, experiencing these trials. And part of that sanctification process is, is the purification that comes through trials. The suffering that comes upon us produces an outcome that makes us into people who are more like Jesus. Our character begins to reflect God's character. Now, by contrast, Peter says that there is a judgment that is also coming for those uh, who do not obey the gospel of God. Believers, on, the, on one hand, are characterized by obedience, right? That's what he says here in verse 17. But he says that there is a specific judgment. He doesn't say what type, uh, how, how exactly this will go down. But he says that there is a judgment that will be for those who are not obeying the gospel of God. And then he, he he continues his thought in verse eighteen, where he says this: "And if the righteous are scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner?" Now, what Peter does here is again he pulls another. Uh, this is more of like a loose. He's not a, he's not straight citing Proverbs uh, eleven, but he's pulling out the same idea of Proverbs eleven thirty one, essentially restating what he's getting at in verse seventeen. If. The righteous are scarcely saved. What will become of the ungodly and the sinner? His phrasing is a little bit weird, but essentially what he's getting at is this. He's not saying, like, those who are Christians are, like, barely, oh, they barely are going to become Christians. They're barely going to make it. When he says that they're scarcely saved, he just says, like, he's echoing what Jesus says. Like that The road, it, it's narrow. The path is narrow, and it's, it's hard to walk along this path. He's just saying that there's difficulty in it, because what you do in the process of becoming a Christian, in the process of, of, of walking with Jesus, is you obey the very words of Christ where you deny yourself, you take up your cross and follow Him. And it's very hard to come to the place where you say, my life doesn't matter. Uh, me being the king, the lord of my own life, being the captain of my own soul, I'm willing to put that aside and to trust in Christ wholeheartedly, to give my life over to him so he rules, he reigns, he's lord. It's very difficult is what Peter's getting at here. But he says that this is the truth of the gospel. God saves his people by refining us, by purifying us. We're in that process of walking with him. But what he's simply saying here is that it's, it's difficult now, but by going through it now, by learning to rejoice now, you are being prepared for the future. And so, in verse 19, he ends with this. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Peter wraps saying, look, here's the summary. You're going to experience these fiery trials. You're going to experience these hardships. But he says that there, are, there is suffering that you will experience that's according to God's will. What he's highlighting for us here, what he's really emphasizing here, is that all suffering, all hardship, all difficulty, all fiery trials, they pass through the hands of God. That there's nothing outside of his control. That he is in charge of all things. This is why uh, Peter roots his argument by calling God the faithful creator. The creator is in charge of all creation. The creator makes all the rules and rules and reigns over all things. And more than that, he is said to be a faithful creator, faithful to his character, faithful to his people, faithful to love us, to sustain us, to get us through every moment of every hour of every day. He's faithful to do that, and that's why he's made himself available to us, to help us every moment of every hour, of every day. That we have help in time of need when we are experiencing these hardships. When suffering strikes, we ought to be able to entrust our souls to a faithful creator. This should sound familiar to you because just... You know, two chapters earlier, Peter has used Christ himself as the example. The only person to ever actually have the right to say, what I'm experiencing is not fair, is is not right, is not okay. The only person to ever experience suffering, hardship, difficulty, and actually have a case that it was unjust, Jesus Peter uses as the example. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23, I'll remind you, he says this, When Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. It was the desire, the motive of Jesus to rightly recognize that what he was experiencing He was going to obey and move through this knowing that there was a plan, knowing that God was using it for his glory. And so when Peter says here that we ought to entrust our souls to a faithful creator, what he's really saying is be like Jesus. And if you want to know how to be like Jesus, well, you should be near to Jesus. And when you're near to Jesus, you rejoice in Jesus. And so this all comes back again in christ treasuring him knowing him enjoying him because he's the goal he's the end don't seek out how to get through trials seek out jesus and you'll get through trials right don't this is how it is with anything in life if you're unhappy don't try to learn how to be happy go get jesus and you'll be happy if you're looking for rest don't try to figure out like, oh, how can I have, go to Jesus and he will give you rest, right? This is literally what he said. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He's literally saying these things. Because Jesus is the goal. He's the end. He's the greatest prize that you will ever get. And he's there to give himself to you. And so as Christians, we can be confident as we move through suffering that we have a faithful creator. Faithful to his promises. Faithful to his people. Who will be faithful to us again and again and again without fail. Friends, we might be people who are unfaithful. Or we might be pretty good at doing it, being faithful. Come, sometimes you blow it. But Jesus never fails. You can always count on him. Every single time. And he's made himself available to you. And so it is my exhortation to you to pursue Christ fiercely. To pursue Christ with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He will fill you. He will give you everything that you need. He will meet every need that you have. And he will not, under any circumstances, disappoint you. Never. Always faithful. Always true. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful for your kindness. We're so thankful for your love toward us. And we pray, Lord, that you would move us now from a place of being hearers of your word to a place of being doers of your word. We want to hear the truth of the gospel. Lord, we, we know that the purpose of this text is so that we might be warned going into circumstances that would be beyond our control, that we would be warned going into seasons of hardship and difficulty and suffering that we can prepare ourselves through joy and so lord we pray that you would help us to be prepared and we would not be distracted by the busyness of life or the cares of this world or the things that are going on but we would set our eyes upon you that our mind's attention and our heart's affections would turn towards you so intentionally Lord, Lord, we want to see, experience you. Lord, we want to, to come to you, Lord, laying everything down so that you might be all in all to us. We need you so desperately. So meet us, Lord, where we're at. We love you. Amen.